Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with writer, director, actor, producer, comedian, Stephen Merchant. When Stephen Merchant grew to six foot seven inches as a teenager, he had a hard time blending in with the crowd, which is something he longed for. As he tells it, lots of kids in school would dye their hair pink, get lots of piercings, or do things to stand out, whereas I spent all my time trying not to stand out, trying to seem shorter to be one of the crowd. Well, despite the unwanted attention, being tall helped Stephen develop his comedic sense. As he says, if people were going to just point at me for being tall, they might as well point at me and go, oh, it's that tall, funny guy. By the time he got to university, he decided to make a career out of stand-up comedy. Stephen put in the time experiencing the highest highs and crushing lows of life as a stand-up. But his career really took off after he teamed up with Ricky Gervais for the hit UK comedy series, The Office. The two met while doing radio for XFM London, and their chemistry was instantaneous and undeniable. After years collaborating with Gervais and others on projects like Extras and HBO's Hello Ladies, Stephen's taking matters into his own hands, writing solo for the first time ever for his current film, Fighting With My Family, based on a real story about a wrestling family in England with big aspirations to reach the WWE. And yes, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is in this movie. So you go from Ricky Gervais to The Rock. Natural progression, I think. Start at the office, end up wrestling. Well, needless to say, Stephen's a fascinating guy, and he joins off-camera to talk about the expectations that come from a hit television show, why he went back to stand-up after a long hiatus, and how he turned his awkward dating experiences into art. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Sam. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Well, I'll tell you, when I saw you had a new film, I thought, finally, the Stephen Merchant wrestling movie. Yes, exactly. I've been waiting. It's obvious that yeah. you were going to make a film about wrestling. Well, anyone who sees me and my physique yeah. knows that it's something I've been very passionate about for a long time. Yes, no, absolutely. You're right. Uh, it's an unusual combination. Yeah, and, and I should say, it's called Fighting With My Family. Right. And it's about a family in Norwich, England, who they... They have sort of a janky little wrestling federation in their own That's town. Right. And the kids' dreams, a boy and a girl, are to be professional wrestlers in the WWE. That's right. And the daughter actually gets a tryout, an extended tryout to go to the United States. And it's sort of her story. And yep. I was surprisingly touched and shocked to find out that it was a totally true story. It's a completely true story, which you don't need to like wrestling to like the movie, which is a kind of key thing for me as well, because I wasn't a wrestling fan when I began this right. project. I had never really watched it. I had no knowledge of it. I used to occasionally see my grandfather watching it when, when I was young, um, and British wrestling, um, if you think of the WWE, and then if you substitute people like The Rock and Steve Austin for like just two really fat men in their 50s, that was British wrestling. In and the, it was in the televised. Days. It was televised. And I had no idea. I was like, this, what is going on here? They don't, they don't appear to actually be hitting each other. I was so confused by it. And over the years, I would occasionally catch a glimpse of WWE, but it had no relationship with it, no understanding of it. And then, um, rather bizarrely, Dwayne The Rock Johnson who I had worked with previously on a film called Tooth Fairy. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, is, uh, <laughs> Thank he, you. He happened to be working in England, and he saw this documentary about the real-life family and um, kind of thought, 
this is interesting. Felt a lot of kinship with them because he comes from a wrestling family. Reached out to them, ended up becoming part of her real life story. And then somewhere along the, on the line, he thought we could make a movie out of this. And I think probably Dwayne only has two English people in his mobile phone, um, <laughs> me and Jason Statham. Yeah. And uh, what I lack in charisma and you know muscle definition, I make up for in, in fast typing speed. <laughs> and I think he thought, I'll get Merchant in. And, and so we've developed it into a film. And so um, I had to immerse myself in wrestling. No kidding. And much perhaps as, as your response was to the finished movie, I sat down thinking I'm not particularly interested in this subject. I thought I'd probably just laugh and sneer at this these people and their kind of esoteric little subculture and I was just really moved by them and I was really moved with the with the sort of this idea of this girl who had this dream and her brother who had this dream to be WWE superstars which for wrestlers is obviously like being in Hollywood or on Broadway or in the you know in the majors or whatever it's yeah. like it's the dream right yeah. and so just the emotion of it just seemed really vivid and touching and moving and ultimately kind of inspiring that the fact they happened to be wrestlers was almost irrelevant. Right. You know? Was there any moment of, of doubt of, can I, can I have the same impact that I've had in the other stuff you've done that has been more comedic right. or playing with reality a little bit? Can I do it on a, on a purely... Um, on, a, on a sincere level. On a sincere right? level, yeah, yes. Yeah, well, that was the thing that was important to me was to not mock these people and this family in particular right. and this world that they are part of because if you satirize it and if you mock it, you undermine its importance for them. And if I dismiss it by laughing at it, then I think it's much harder for you to be rooting for this family because you, you just think that everything they're doing is silly and frivolous. Well, that's the thing that I think you can look at The Office and look at some of the other things you've done, and even Hello Ladies to some extent. You could say there is, a, there is an element of right. the absurdity of being a human being. I think that's what and it is. And you played this straight. And I think I just dialed towards the, the reality of it and the drama of it a little more in this, but... I think through all of the things I've done, I've always, I've always had a lot of fondness and affection for the characters and for the world. They, so even as far back as The Office, you know, there was a lot of, there was sort of what you might loosely term satire and, and you could say some, in some ways, uh, mockery of these people. But we still had enormous affection for them and we felt a great affinity and love for them. And, and, and even in, you know, Hello Ladies, you know, I'm mocking a lot of the kind of the sort of behavior of men in the dating world and so on. But but I still liked this man and I still wanted him to kind of f sort of see the error of his ways and become a better person and, and fall in love, you know. And, and I think everything I've done, I've tried to have that redemptive element in it. I've tried to have that the sort of happy ending, if you yeah, will. Yeah. And I've never felt it to be corny or cheesy or 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 trite because I like happy endings and things. I think if we can't tell happy endings in, in movies and fiction... When can we tell them? Because we certainly don't get them in real life very often. Right. Real life ends in tragedy for every single person. For all of us. <laughs> yeah. And were they worried about your history of what you've written in the past? Were they worried think, that you were going to make fun of them? I think when, they fr when I first went up to meet them, I think they were guarded a little. I think they thought, is this guy come to laugh at us or to mock us? And I think it was a little bit like I felt them testing me a little to see what my agenda was. But I had been very moved by the documentary which was about them and so I felt a, a duty to them to sort of represent them honestly but I didn't want it I didn't want to shy away from the from the darker aspects of their lives it you're mindful that it's a weird experience for them because they're ultimately going to have to watch it and they're real people and you don't want to um 
You don't want to sort of upset them, but you don't want to just blow smoke up their ass. Yeah. And you're also aware that they're wrestlers and they're about three times as big as me and they could break my neck if they're not happy. <laughs> <laughs> or at the very least, my legs. So That'd that be a was, weird end of the story, wouldn't it? It would, be? wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. They saw the movie, they weren't happy, and they, they broke, broke my legs. <laughs> and, and did you write this alone? So I wrote it alone, and previously I'd worked, obviously, with Ricky Gervais and other people, other collaborators, and, and there's... So this is the first time you hadn't collaborated? Yeah. So how, to, how was that? Really like, tough. Really yeah, tell hard. me about that. I mean, because I would assume in a collaboration, especially with a guy like Ricky Gervais, there's probably a lot of ideas are born organically through dialogue back and forth, Absolutely. right? So right. how did you do it differently? Well, the biggest challenge, I think, when you're writing on your own is, as you say, when you're working with someone else, you... You, you can discuss uh, endlessly, but you, you arrive at decisions quicker because you sort of discount a lot of things much quicker because you have a sounding board. Because so much of writing is the selection of what you're not going to include. Yeah. Whereas when you're on your own, you, there's no one to tell you not to go down a road. So I might go down a whole road, which was about how Zach, the brother in the story, met his wife. And I would write these scenes and I'd be so pleased with them. And then, of course... The script is 482 pages long. <laughs> and so that selection process and that editing and that refining of the story is so much harder on your own. How'd you sort of replicate the experience of what you did need out of a collaboration when you were by yourself writing? Well, well I started off with, the f I got someone to transcribe the documentary. Okay. And so I had all the dialogue as a sort of building block because it gave me a very clear sense of, of how they thought of the story and how they spoke right, about the right. subject. And, and there were a couple of key lines in the documentary that I wanted to replicate wholesale. There's a moment where Ricky, the father, is talking about, and he's this big, gruff dude with a mohawk, just a huge, big guy, and, and his wife, Julia, has shock of red hair, and they're sat there being interviewed in the documentary, and, and he says, um, yeah, I was in and out of jail about three times before the age of 21. And his wife says, mainly violence. Right. And the sort of offhand way with which she just said, mainly violence. You know, it's nothing to them. You know, we've all gone to prison. For him, it was violence. Yeah. And, um, and I just thought that, that, you know, it's hard to, you know, if you were to just sit there and try and dream that up. Uh, you, you'd, you'd struggle. And so to me, that something like that is a real way into the way they think, right? Is for them, there's sort of no shame in, the, in, the, in their past. It's in the past. They've dealt with it. They've moved on. And so kind of having that as a sort of mantra helped me into, to sort of into the way they thought and spoke about things. Right. You know? Was there a shorthand for you of, I know those people growing up? Definitely. I, I come, although I, I guess I'm middle class now, but my parents certainly... When I was, my dad was a plumber and a builder and stuff. And so, so I grew up in the, I think, the working class version. Right. Yes, yes. I mean, for instance, you probably think as an American that I sound like, you know, Hugh Grant or Prince William. But actually, I have a very regional parochial accent, which if you were from England, you'd identify as being quite a working class southern English accent. I mean, it's, it's for a tiny, relatively tiny country, the sheer level of accent distinction is pretty pronounced, and I like say each of those accents represents a certain um, socioeconomic uh, position. So, when you were in school, did all the kids have your accent? Like, was pretty there much. any class system at school, or was everyone sort of the same? Well, I didn't realize I'd never become aware of class until I went to university. Really? And, it was the f and I, and I, you know, until the age of seventeen or eighteen, I had no sense of where I stood in. I didn't. Class wasn't even a thing that I thought about. 
I see it in movies, but I thought it was something from the 1920s. I didn't realize it was still a thing. And I got to university and people with very posh voices would, would, would mock the way I spoke. And I was just sort of shocked. Really? Because I thought we, we're all here on merit, right? We all got the education to get to, to university. How am I, why am I being mocked? Like I was shocked. And I became self-conscious about it and aware of it. And, and I became aware that some of them had been to private school and they, they almost knew each other even though they'd, and I had, I'd just come from a regular public school. And so I just, it was a shock to me. Can yes. you give me a little picture of that, who you were among your friends and, and when you discovered what you wanted to do and, and how you sort of like fit in with other kids? Uh, I was a comedy fan. I used to watch comedies with my dad and particularly a lot of classic American comedy, whether it was the Marx Brothers or Lauren Hardy or uh, later I would watch things like MASH. So I was a, a kind of comedy fan. I just enjoyed that stuff and, and, I, and similarly British humor. So there was that, and there was a kind of, my dad's very funny, and I think I inherited some of his just kind of social wit, just Is being he droll in a social, and dry? He's droll and dry, in a, in a, and quite self-mocking, you know, and, and, and so I think I inherited some of that, you know, just the being funny in the pub kind of guy. Yeah. And then on top of that was that I was six foot seven by the age of, goodness, I don't know, early teens. Probably. Oh, so you grew was, early. So I stood out from the crowd, whether I liked it or not, from a young age, and someone once said to me, do you think you used humor in order to control when people laugh at you? Huh. And that might be true. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It certainly helped. I certainly felt like if they were going to point at me just for being tall, they may as well point and go, oh, it's that funny tall guy. You know, right. it was like I somehow yeah. had some ownership. And so, you know, a lot of kids, I remember at school, they'd dye their hair pink or they'd get a lot of piercings, right, or things to stand out from the crowd, whereas I just spent all my time trying to not stand out from the crowd, to to seem shorter and one of the mob. Did you pick the outcasts or did you pick a group that accepted you or? My feeling is that I, I, I sort of moved between different social groups in school. Humor was a way to kind of interact in all of those environments, but I wasn't really in, accepted in any of them. You know what I mean? So I, I felt like I was sort of drifting between camps, but I wasn't, I didn't quite have my gang. It's funny um, to think of, of being a fan of comedy and trying, uh, you know, trying out things. And then when you bomb or fail to keep pushing to be the funny guy when you're already the object of some unwanted attention. Well, it didn't give me self-confidence, but, it it, but it gave me a way of, of getting by. So I, you know, like I never, I, people would say, well, women love funny guys, but I would never go and talk to a girl with the intention of asking her on a date to the movie theater or something in high school because I was too self-conscious and, 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 and didn't have that confidence. But I could talk to her and make her laugh. Right. I, I didn't, that was not a problem. I wasn't shy in that way. You know, I could, I could communicate and, I, and, and years later I would find out, you know, I, you know, I really had a crush on you in high school. I was like, why didn't you tell me? I had no idea. I didn't have any of the, the, the spidey sense to figure this stuff out. So it was, a weird, it was weird because now I look back and it's like if only people had told me, oh, everyone's jealous of tall guys. Don't be self-conscious about it. Don't slump and hide in the corner. Stand proud. It's a, it's a thing people envy. I'd have, I could have ruled that school. <laughs> you know, similarly, it's like if, you know, if, if someone had said, if you ask a girl out and she says no, that's fine. At least you asked. If someone had told me that instead yeah. of just that fear of, like, I better never ask because if they say no, I'll be humiliated. Uh, that was sort of probably how I felt. And so it was weird. It was this weird, very odd sort of, 
private self-doubt and a kind of public veneer of, yeah, everything's cool. Did you have the wherewithal to realize that you can do something with comedy and you could put yourself on a path? And did that ambition carry you through that self-doubt about your own appearance or your own exposure? Yeah, it did. I mean, because I think that was the thing is that it's like I was self-conscious in, in real life, but I also knew those were comic assets. Like I knew that being tall was there a book and thin or and gangly read that No, well I was just I was a little bit of a nerdy fan of comedy history and and so I would read about, you know, Charlie Chaplin or I'd read about uh, John Cleese from Monty Python, who's a who I'm a big fan of. And he is he was a tall guy with, you know, and very kind of loose limbed and 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 it talked about how he'd sort of used those in his comedy and he'd used that physicality to be funny and and I realized, well, I've got that, you know, it's no good me trying to be, you know, like a tiny little ball of energy. I, I'm this tall, gangly guy, and I should use this as a performer to my advantage. So, I, you know, I also thought about, had ambitions about doing stand-up. And so I, the original path you saw was stand-up leads to sketch, and sketch leads to TV. Like, did you exactly. have sort of a... I was very, I was pretty single-minded. In England, um, a lot of those people like Monty Python and Hugh Laurie and... Stephen Fry and a lot of Rowan Atkinson, a lot of those people met um, at either Oxford or Cambridge University. Right, at Footlights. At the Footlights Comedy Review. So I thought, well, if I could get to the Comedy Footlights Review, then maybe I could get into comedy. And I would tell my teachers grandly, I'd love to go to Cambridge. And they'd be like, yeah, you're not getting, you're not getting into Cambridge. And was that sort of just the, the, the public school? Well, here we That's call it. it That's the thing school, again. Uh, teachers in my, in my uh, school, the idea that I would say I want to go to Cambridge and I want to be a professional comic actor they just looked at me like what are you talking about you're a maniac they just it, to them it was it was insane it was it was like saying you want to win the lottery or you want to be a rock star i mean it was sort of you you don't do that that's that's something that happens to other people not funny that right at the time when you're supposed to have all your dreams and go yeah. for it and everything there people are already telling you that's crazy do you think this because i've always assumed that was a different thing in america that in america my assumption was that at school if you said i want to be president people go 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 for it shoot for the stars whereas in england i feel like they're like you want to be prime minister (laughs) yeah good luck with this 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 tall guy thinks (laughs) thinks he can be prime minister get your autograph now right no i went to public school too and when i was young there was there was that same sort of thing of, oh, come on, kid, that's yeah. that's impossible. And it's funny because I don't know where, because I never wavered in that. I never thought for a minute I shouldn't try and do this. Did you have, like, an advisor? Did yes, you- yes, I remember meeting someone, but I just, I felt, perhaps arrogantly, I just felt like I didn't, I, you know, this. he's talking to people who, who um, have barely even thought about their futures, right? That they're going to finish school and, and they're just going to drift on and, and he's there to tell them, you know, well, you're pretty good at math. Maybe you should, you know, become an accountant. Right. And I would talk to him in that way. And I realized that me explaining what, oh, I'd like to be John Cleese, please. <laughs> you know, they were, that, that, would, that would have got me nowhere. So I, I remember just sort of him saying, well, you're, you know, you like writing, you like creativity. Maybe you could become a teacher or a, right. or a journalist. Not you know? Maybe you could go write for the BBC. Right. No. Maybe you could teach other people <laughs> yeah, exactly. how to give up on <laughs> exactly. their dreams. Yeah. Well, okay, so I'm curious because you had such a blueprint in John Cleese, even down to the physicality, but the fact that he went to the Footlights and he put on sketch and did stand up and went to Edinburgh Festival and all that stuff. Well, firstly, I should say I didn't get to Cambridge University, so I never joined the Footlights. So I didn't get that. And that was my career plan, and that didn't 
pan out. So now what do I do? And I wanted to do stand-up at university and I had a, a shot at a, a gig one night and then the gig was cancelled for various reasons. And so I, in a way, I was so relieved that I didn't have to do it because I was so nervous about the thought that I um, didn't do it. I never did it for another two years. And then I worked up the nerve again and I went to a little club in my hometown and I went out there and I did my five minutes and, and, it, and it went really well. And I thought, oh, well, it turns out I'm incredible at this. <laughs> and then did the same act in a different club three weeks later, died on my ass, just bombed <laughs> terribly. And just was like, oh, this is really, and I didn't understand, like, it was the same show, what happened? Right. And, and then the next few years was just intermittent gigs with kind of tremendous highs and crushing lows and just no consistency and feeling like I was starting again at every gig. What was the message to yourself? like? Like when you thought you had a handle on it and then it it's was... So, it was so confusing to me because I didn't understand... Because so, again, clearly I kept going back. Yeah. So obviously I was delusional enough to think, well, I'll, I can get, I'll get this right at some point, which is what's odd. Um, I don't know why I kept going back. I just, I guess I just had convinced myself I, I would, I'd get it at some point, that I'd crack it. And so what happened in the end? Did you get it or did you like decide I'm going to go a different avenue or? Well, what happened was while I was doing stand-up with you know, different varying levels of success, uh, I met Ricky Gervais and we started and we ended up making The Office in England. And so I just stopped doing stand-up because why am I putting myself through this agony when I can be focusing and writing and directing this show? So my question there is, was there a moment when you thought, I'm less of a performer than I am maybe a writer, director type person? I don't person? think so. I think what it was was I thought, um, You know, I, 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 there was never a thought about me performing in the office, but because I was, I was in my mid twenties, and I, and I just, I got this opportunity to make a show for the BBC. Yeah, tell me I about just, that. It's like to me, the idea of performing was, I, I didn't care. I mean, I was, you know, I was doing what John Cleese had done, and John Cleese was often a writer for other shows when he wasn't performing. You know, so to me, the fact that I was there and I was working with Ricky and I was writing and directing it with him and. You know, and we were doing that. I was making a comedy show, which was what I'd wanted to do. So the fact I wasn't performing was here and there. But plus, I also didn't do performing because it gave me a buzz. I did it because it was this interesting, weird challenge. Like somewhere along the line, it had moved from if I started performing because it was a way of of controlling when people laughed at me and, and it gave me, you know, it allowed me to kind of s sort of make use and make fun of myself before someone else made fun of me. If that's how it begun at school, somewhere on the line, because when you're performing in front of uh, anonymous people in a comedy club who you'll never see again, what do I care what they think? You know, I'm, I'm strong enough in my mental health to sort of not care what they think, really, in terms of me as a person. Well, right there, you're proving you're different than the normal standard. Well, that's the thing. And so I didn't have all that weird need for approval right. that I think a lot of performers have. I, I, that was not the thing for me. The thing was, it became, oh, I really enjoy this. It's so hard. It's, it's like the jigsaw puzzle of it that was interesting to me. And that's the same with writing and directing all this. It was like making the, making the, the toy car from designing it to painting it to putting it together to gluing it. That's what's fun. You and know. that was the office. You got to take a little right. germ of an idea. So tell me about your first impressions of Ricky Gervais when you met him. Because you started as his assistant, right? Right. He, he got a job at a radio station that was newly launching in London. Okay. Playing alternative rock. And he had never had any radio or broadcasting experience. He, he's naturally very funny. He's the funny guy in the pub. But he never performed. He was not a 
uh, wasn't trying to be a comedian, wasn't writing, wasn't doing anything really. And he got this job behind the scenes at this radio station and, and he immediately rightly realized he didn't know what he was doing and that he should get an assistant who could kind of cover for him basically. And I happened to have sent my resume because I was trying to get into radio. I'd done some radio at college and um, he hired me up. And I used to joke that it was probably because he's so lazy and my resume was the first one on the pile. He's like, this kid will be fine. Really? And he called me up and we kind of hit it off. And, and so I moved to London and um, joined him as his assistant and um, very quickly realized that he'd probably get us both fired. <laughs> Just because he was quite, at those days, he was quite lazy and um, and we, and the station launched and it launched the day after Princess Diana had died. Oh, right. And so there wasn't really much public appetite for a rock and roll radio station, you know, because it was a very somber period in England. Yeah. So the station took a while to find its feet and we went on, uh, I remember the, 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 the boss sent us an email after about a week that just, it was just an email that just pinged in and it just said to both of us, what the fuck am I paying you two bastards for? <laughs> And I've cleaned that up. And um, <laughs> we panicked. And so we went on the air and we started kind of goofing around with some of the DJs. And that seemed to pr- go well. And that was well received. And we were suitably funny in a kind of little double act way. And then he sent us another email, the boss, about a week later going, that's the funniest shit I've ever heard. And much like my experience of stand up, his response was then, it would vary from, why am I paying you assholes to, you're geniuses to, you're, you're like, fine. I mean, we're was, doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It was just a, you know, and um, anyway, finally, I got the opportunity to jump ship and join the BBC. And so I joined the BBC as a trainee because I just thought that would open up. Again, going back to my parents, you know, take the sensible path. Make sure you get a decent grounding in the, in the business. Don't be just hanging around, goofing around with this guy on the radio. So when you're at the BBC, are you looking around at office life and going, I can make something out of this? Because one of the things that is astounding to me about you writing The Office at the age you did is that it so perfectly captures the malaise of middle-aged life where right. you're literally trying to find mundane ways to amuse yourself so the clock will move and right. you can leave your job that you don't love. Well, obviously, I got to give a lot of credit to Ricky, who had been in sort of middle management for many years and was older than me. And therefore, I mean, he was in his I guess, mid to late 30s when we started. And so he, he, he had a lot of experience of that. But, but I had realized from almost the beginning of my working life, working, you know, uh, I worked at a magazine, I worked um, at a charity, I worked at a call center answering phones. Um, I, I worked um, at the BBC itself. And, and, and in all of those environments, I'd already observed exactly the same thing. There was the people that were in it for life. There were the people that were running down the clock. There were the people that were making excuses for having never shot for the stars and kind of settled. You know, the people that had made a couple of bad choices and now were kind of slightly stuck. There was, you know, all of the people that we tried to illustrate in the office and that Ricky had observed from his years in that world, I had seen very quickly in, in, the, in the couple of years I'd been in the, in the, in the rat race, as it were. It just, it, 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 to me, it didn't matter from what position you looked at it. You could see you it. You could see it there. You, I mean, I remember I went, I went to, uh, when I was doing that call center job, you had to train to, um, you, you had to learn how to deal with difficult customers. So there were a bunch of trainees, there was about 10 of us we'd been hired, and half of us would go in one room and the other would do another, and we'd have to call each other and we'd have to be a difficult customer. 
that the other person would then try and deal with. And as obviously an aspiring performer, I couldn't believe, I mean, this was a joy. So I would call and I would be the most difficult customer that you could imagine. I'd be a little deaf. I didn't speak, you know, great English. I had a thick kind of Northern accent that no one could understand. And in the end, they wouldn't let me do it anymore because I was upsetting the other trainees because <laughs> I was being too difficult. But the um, training guy who was teaching us sort of said, oh, you're, you fancy yourself as a bit of a performer, do you? And I said, oh, well, you know, I hope so one day. He goes, yeah, I, uh, I tried to be an actor. Did that for a couple of years, but, um, but uh, I don't miss it. I mean, um, this is a kind of acting. Michael Scott yeah, right there. Yeah, and you just thought, born. wow. <laughs> there's so, you know, I mean, it was there. Even at, in my early 20s, I'd, I'd seen it. And so um, it, wasn't, it wasn't much of a leap. Well, I do think it takes a certain kind of observational brain that can look at those things that we don't notice and say, no, that's actually, if you, if you put it in the right light, it's, it can actually reveal the human condition. Right. Did right. You, I, I, so was it exciting to start collaborating on that show? Like, like, did you find out quickly that not only you had a good idea, but this collaborator where things would fly? And like, did it feel yes. like you said building that toy car? And I think we'd, we'd hit it off from the moment that he called me up for that interview just to be his assistant. I mean, the truth is the reason I think he hired me was because we did hit it off in just those preliminary meetings and we, we found a natural rhythm and rapport. And, and very quickly, we had a little kind of double act thing going on the radio which transferred very effortlessly into the writing process. And I was very ambitious, and I think I had a lot of of self-discipline, and a lot of, um, and I think a lot of that helped pushing us forward. But what Ricky had was he had, because he was older, because he wasn't trying to be a performer and be a a, a star, he, he could, he was sort of invincible. Because if the BBC said, well, we're not gonna let you write it and direct it and be in it, he'd be like, all right, see ya. And they go, wait a minute, you know, let's be, you know, because he didn't care. He, he, he and was, you were he like, was no, no, and I'm let's like, listen to them. Oh, honestly, we'd leave a meeting. I'd be like, let me do the speaking next time. What is wrong with you? Because he'd just be like, it wasn't kind of an arrogant thing. It was just like, I, I'm not, I'm just here to, you know, to try and do something that I think is good. I, I, I'll chew off, doesn't matter. I, I'm 35, I, you know, whereas when you're a hungry 20 something, any opportunity you kind of want to grasp. And I think that mix of sort of his, his just his maturity and his kind of uh, his willingness to just to wash his hands, go. yeah, and my eagerness and my kind of sort of you know my jump, chomping at the bit, kind of I think it was a good fusion of of energies, you know. What was the work that no one saw, like the really hard work of that show at the very beginning? There are long days where you're staring at each other and you're not and you're not cracking. So the it's case, not it it's were. not just always happening. Not always, no. I mean, it's. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of mechanics to it. There's a lot of just grunt work. You know, there's just a lot of nuts and bolts um, figuring out. There's the initial kind of splurge of ideas that's exciting and fun, and you know, you're just throwing every idea at the wall and just sticking up post-it notes with ideas, and that's really exciting. And then at some point, you have to corral all of that into a six or seven episodes, as we do in the UK. And so that's a lot more of a slower, more painstaking process and lots more discussion. Just it's a lot more um, minute and kind of uh, forensic, you know. And then once you get to the making of the show, you some of that bounce comes back again, right? Because now you're on the floor with the actors and the actors are bringing things and Ricky's playing around and I'm throwing him some ideas. And it's just, and then you're sort of energized again, right? right. But the real 
labour is six months or plus of us just sitting in a room in North London. We used to have this office that could, we could never get warm in the winter, so we'd have like a little electric fire, you know? <laughs> and it's like the least glamorous, the least exciting. And throwing dialogue back throwing and Throwing dialogue around and, you know, improvising into a dictaphone. And, uh, but it was just um, a lot of fun, and, and, but also hard, hard work, you know? Just what were your initial work. expectations for the show? We thought if we got one million viewers, we'd be happy. And that we thought, well, if, if, if a million people really love the show, if it's their favorite thing, we're happy. That's fine. You know, it's, 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 we don't expect this to be that popular, but we think the people that really get it will enjoy it. We literally thought we'd made a little indie music album. And if, if we had a couple of diehard fans who just thought it was the best album ever and came and, you know, and, and, and loved to play it again and again, we, that will be fine for us. And, and yes, ideally they'd let us do it again, but we had our chance and we were pleased with it and it turned out well and we were proud of it and we thought, well, that's the thing we wanted to do. And then, and initially that seemed to be what the reaction was going to be and it seemed, you know... When so it, it didn't aired, imme- immediately hit. came out in the middle of the summer on the BBC, on a smaller BBC channel and um, they had done a test audience thing um, and the, the office scored the... It was the second lowest audience vote, you know, or in terms of kind of audience favoritism. The only thing lower that was less popular was women's lawn bowls. Uh, that was the only thing that, it, that was considered less appealing. And so it came on the air, and I remember I was on a train the day after it, it first aired, and there was a woman on the train with her friend, and they were chatting. Obviously didn't know who I was, because why would they? I was a writer, wasn't in the show. And um, one of them said, uh, did you see that documentary last night on the BBC? Oh, the boss, oh, it was hilarious. This guy. And her friend said, oh no, I don't think that was a documentary. I think that was a sitcom. And the first lady went, oh, well, it wasn't very funny then. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, oh. Well, that was probably actually like. Well, it's kind of like, this is exciting. Yeah. That some people think it's the real thing. And because obviously no one was known. Ricky wasn't known. None of the actors were known. So it kind of slipped under the radar. And, and sure enough, some people really went with it and kind of, they had a tiny little fan base, but seemed like it was going to be dead in the water. And then we started winning some awards. Right. And there's nothing that any TV broadcaster likes more than an award, right? So once the BBC kind of got to turn up at some award ceremonies and, and, and see us collect a BAFTA or whatever it was, then that relaxed people. And then then it sort of gathered, gathered momentum, you know, and, and then we were off it's, to the It race. is the record analogy, like, you make something when you don't know how to make anything. Yes. And you sort of just fashion it out of thin air, and then it takes off, and all of a sudden, y- there's this expectation. And it could be sort of crippling. Because like you said, you like the going up Mount Everest. I would think that that fear of having to maintain that success would not feel the same way as building something in your lab that right. no one knows about. So how did you sort of deal with the success, or how did you have to like, reconfigure your, you know, your mindset after it happened. Well, it's tough because they always talk, again, to make the music analogy, you know, your debut album you've been working on all your life. Your follow-up album you got maybe a year or two. Right. Right? And so we, we were nobodies. We were underdogs. You know, there's, it's very easy to champion people when... Because a critic, an audience, they can get behind it because they're like, they can discover this thing. Oh, they're they, your, they feel, you're exactly. theirs. Exactly, and, like and they take ownership of it, and they're proud yeah. of it, and so on. 
And so, but you never get the chance to be that again, right? Because now you're the award-winning guys. But plus now we're going to judge you against your own thing. Right. Before you were judged against nothing because you were just young, eager hopefuls. Um, but now we're judging you against your award-winning previous show. And, uh, and so I, again, maybe because I was a bit of a nerd when I was young and I would look and I read a lot about other people's careers, I kind of sensed that the office had taken on a force of its own and it had gathered momentum here and it was obviously being remade and so on. And so it had begun to, I mean, in, in the UK at least, you know, they would use Ricky's face to illustrate any newspaper article about office life. Right. You know, it became right. the sort of default thing. And when you think that 50% of, you know, this country and ours works in an office, if not more, there's a lot of news stories about offices. And, and if you're using a, a still from our show every time, <laughs> You, it's just in the ether, yeah. right? But anyway, so my point being that um, it, it struck me that there was no way we could compete with that success. Right. It had a, it was Frankenstein's monster now and we'd created it, but it had gone off marching, rampaging around the countryside. And plus now probably everyone wants to work with you and you have budgets. Right. And, and so it's like, you have to take advantage of that. Well, so I've, I remember saying to Ricky, I have a conversation, we, we, we shouldn't try and top it, we should just move sideways and, and, just, and just keep doing something else, but not try and think we have to be, we have to get a bigger audience or more awards or anything like that because I just think that seemed like a... Did you have any sort of worries that maybe you'd peaked and that was going to be your high point? I, I don't, I think those probably came later. Yeah. <laughs> when you realize how hard it is to do it well. And that because The Office was the first thing we'd done, we didn't realize that there was an alchemy to that that was hard to recreate. We had this perfect cast. Martin Freeman was brilliant, Mackenzie, all the actors, Ricky was great, you know, he was new, no one knew who he was, there was no baggage. The way we shot it worked with the, with the style of the comedy and it helped us with the story, like everything, it was relatively easy to shoot and it was it just all the elements. It was kind of perfect little microcosm or perfect little um, ecosystem. And right. then you realize, oh no, actually, it's very hard to get all the elements together to, to make life, Yeah. you know, and I think probably you know, if we were older and more seasoned, we'd have realized that and we'd have perhaps kept it going longer or whatever. But I think we just thought naively, yeah, we'll go and do something else. How hard can it be? That was easy. But I admire that because I, I do think the joy is not in maintaining something. Right. I think that to use the band analogy again, you don't want to make the same record a second time. That's it. And I do, I do find I am, I do get impatient. I do get bored. You do. And I do like new opportunities and new challenges and, um, and so I didn't want to just, yeah, keep, keep doing the same thing, and neither did Ricky. Well, I want to fast forward a little bit to the fact that you went back to stand-up and you had a stand-up routine that morphed into a television show. Yeah. I, want, I want to talk about that a little bit with you because, as you know, we met because I photographed yeah. the poster for Hello Ladies. Yeah. But what I didn't know was that that did not begin like The Office did as a concept in Office for HBO that you pitched. It began as you going back out and having another go at stand-up. So right. can you tell me what led up to that and, and how, how the stand-up turned into sort of a uh, treatise or an observational uh, you know, uh, diatribe on your dating experiences? Well, I guess at some point after the success of The Office, I had parked the stand-up for a while, but I think there was part of me that thought there was unfinished business with yeah. it, that I hadn't quite cracked it. And a lot of my heroes had been or were stand-up comedians, and I had great respect for it and a love of it. And from those occasions when it had gone well, I knew that on occasion I had an aptitude for it. So I just kind of 
I sort of had this itch that needed to be scratched. And so I started to dabble around with it. And it took me a long time both to build an act, to sort of unlearn the shtick I'd been doing before, which no longer felt right or appropriate. Because you're so much younger. Because I'd been younger and also I, you know, I wanted to be more authentic and more truthful. Uh, and, and I had more of a heightened persona when I started out and I, I wanted this to feel a bit more honest. But that takes nerve. And so in a way you're, because I had a, a reputation from having done The Office, but not as a performer, I was going out to these clubs with a certain reputation, but not known as a stand-up. So I was sort of slightly learning in, in the spotlight, you Must know, have been kind of terrifying. which was really tough. And, and so, because yeah, because now there's an expectation. Oh, it's the guy right. from the office. Well, because the compare is introducing you as here's three-time BAFTA comedy winner right. Stephen Merchant, you know, and he's like, I've been like, on stage hey, for five how's years. How's the soup? Yeah, everybody. right, right. <laughs> so, um, so I, I sort of did it as tentatively and as carefully as I could, and I and I worked and worked on it just to get match fit, I guess. And then the thing I just found was I just kept coming back to sto stories of dating and just stories of dating mishaps. And what I loved about talking about dating is that there's an intrinsic drama to going on a date. You know, if you're someone who's looking to find love, you're going for these job interviews, which right. could be the job of your life. So there's a huge weight to that, or at least I gave it this weight in my own stupid head. And, and so you've got, there's so much, there's so much at stake when you're on the date that you don't embarrass yourself, you don't humiliate yourself. If it's going well, you don't blow it, right? If you get someone, if you end up, you know, in a in a in a sexual situation with someone, there's all that added comic jeopardy, right? So Just, you on a first date was pretty wound up. Pretty het up. Um, and, um, <laughs> well, I just, I, and so just, I don't, it just seemed, it just seemed fun. So many of my stories I used to share with Ricky, you know, after a weekend would just be ill-fated, you know, dating stories. Almost always because I had tried to be something I wasn't. Right. You know, I tried to seem like James Bond, but spilt soup on my suit. You know, it was just, it was that. And so I just, that was just, it just, I just found it very funny and I just enjoyed kind of exercising the demons by talking about it. And that is what built to that show, which ultimately led to the TV version of that, which was a sort right. of like so a dramatization of that same sort of stuff. And were you, were you the lead from the beginning in their mind? I think it was literally, yes, how do we transpose it into a sitcom? And, and a lot of, I considered a while, like, do I, am I myself in this? But, right. you know, Kirby Enthusiasm was big. And I didn't, I just felt like there was a lot of things where comedians play themselves. Yes. And do you see me doing stand-up in the show? Like, it just seemed, that seemed too kind of meta to yes, me. Yes, because you mentioned Curb Your Enthusiasm. And there are some parallels in terms of exploring the awkwardness of human interaction. Right. And I think that brilliant thing about Hello Ladies was not only was it spot on on observational awkwardness and had the ability to make you uncomfortable while watching it, but there was an underdog likability to your character that does not exist usually when, when the goal is to create awkward scenes. Right, right. And, and that's why I fell in love with the show was because I rooted for your character. Right. And I, it made me wonder if when you were starting to write it, if you realized that what you were exploring was, was the awkwardness of being a human being. Well, I, I'm always interested in that, but I have to say, I, I don't think I ever intended it to feel as awkward for the viewer as it was for many viewers. Really? I just thought it was funny. And actually a lot of other people, and it's true of The Office as well, found it awkward. They would talk about watching it through their fingers. Yeah. And I'm always a bit surprised, both with The Office and, because I just thought, it was just funny to me, you know, I just, and I wonder sometimes if it's like, 
if you're making a horror movie and you know that the blood is fake and that the knife is a retractable blade, you'll do the most dark, brutal scenes, right? Because you're just actors having goofing around, right? Sure, and right. what do I care? More blood. And it's only when you watch it as an audience, you're like, ah, this is horrible, right? right. And I wonder if it's like a little bit like that for us. Like we were doing the show and just having fun, like, wow, let's really turn the screw on this. Yeah. Let's really make it you know, tough for him. Just finding it funny. And, and the viewer then watches like, ah, this is intense. And, um, and so I sometimes wonder if, you know, yes, my, my intention was probably not to make it as excruciating as it was. Well, I think there's an understanding that you have for that that goes deeper than a writer trying to be funny and it and it had to come from your own experiences and some of the, I, I think probably some of the loneliness and the and the sheer uh, um, I, I don't know embarrassment of being human had oh, to have yes. come from a real place oh absolutely and I've all and I've long going back to like I was talking about being at school and that anxiety about asking the girl out should I what, what if I'm humiliated something about humiliation about being laughed at about failure uh, felt it just feels very human I think and very and so much of what human behavior is is um, born of people's insecurities right so you know when I see a, a, a kind of bully in a in a social environment the guy that doesn't let anyone have the last word, the guy who, who wants to be seen as, as having won the dinner party. Yes. I had the funniest anecdotes, you know, I dominated the conversation, that guy. I don't look at that as an enviable quality, right? I look at that like, what is it in his DNA that means he has to just win all the time, right? He, he seems pitiful to me. If I see the, um, you know, the, the street guy, you know, you know on the news who's, who's a mugger, I'm not like, wow, that guy's a tough badass. I'm like, what, what, why, what, what's led this loser to this point, right? Yeah, that he's yeah. holding up this gas station. And I think, so that's it. I, I, weirdly, I, every human behavior to me, even the coolest person in the world to me seems faintly laughable. Everything seems a bit laughable to me. I got, remember getting criticized in a school report once by a teacher when I was in my teens saying, Steve's a smart kid, but he, he always tries to see the funny side of everything. And it was a criticism. <laughs> and um, like, I've yep. always just thought, yeah, <laughs> that's what I do. You know, I just, I, you know, I, I see like, you see a rock star who's being interviewed and he's got, you know, he's wearing shades and, you know, the hair and the whole thing. And I'm just looking at it going, well, you've spent too long on the hair. It's, there's, this, is, this is so artificially put together to look like you didn't give a shit. Yeah. That... I don't buy any of it. You know what I mean? Like I don't, it's like I don't buy. And so to me, anything, everything feels like it's, an, it's artifice and it's pretense and everyone's, you know, uh, putting on a front in some way. And, and, and that's funny, very funny to me to explore, you know. And in the office, everyone's trying to present a version of themselves. David Brent, Michael Scott, they want, they want the world to see them in a certain way, right? And the world keeps saying, no, we can see the real you behind. Right. And it's true of, uh, it was true of Hello Dailies and it was true in the stand-up and everything, you know, is, uh, and maybe it's that thing of, um, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Like if, if I didn't mock it, would I just be that idiot right. that you're laughing at? Because yeah. I've been, I have been that person in the past. And so, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, except that I think it's sort of, I, everything feels like fair game. To, to lift up the um, lift up the rock and 
and sort of laugh at the ants underneath? Well, it, it begs the question of where you had to go to write this thing in terms of your own memories and looking at your own behavior and having to, uh, having to sort of dissect some of the things you did because I'm sure that part of this was digging back through your own of experiences. Course. Yeah. And, and to be able to write it in such a way that, that I would feel a human connection with this character, I'm assuming you had to sort of mm, accept some truths about yourself. Well, that's true, and I, and I was always happy to embrace this, although I think some of it is a mixture of pulling back you know, me as an adolescent or me in my early 20s and conflating sure. them all into this guy. But also, we often used to think of it as, a, as, a, as a, the bizarro opposite world version of Entourage. You know, where these guys seemingly move relatively effortlessly around L.A. as these playboy characters. And we just saw it as, a, as who were the loser versions of that, right? right. In a way, I, I kind of wish the show was still on now because in this post-Weinstein kind of Me Too uh, world, I think we'd actually touched on a lot of at least the sort of toxic masculinity, the kind of this desperation, this sweatiness that a lot of men have in their relationships with women. And we dealt with a lot of that stuff sort of unwittingly because, again, to me, I, again, I was trying to kind of mock a lot of that very mask, that masculine behavior, that, that the game playing and the, yeah. and, the, and the thinking that you need to sort of put on this swaggery, aggressive version of yourself because that's, that's desirable. When in actual fact, many women are just like, ah. This is well, horrible. Well, it makes me wonder, like, in your own history of going on dates, the, uh, the self-dialogue that goes on, right. that maybe you're not tuned in to because you're taking it as the gospel truth in your head while it's happening. Like, oh, don't say that. You just said the stupidest thing. Right. I guess I'm asking if it revealed your self-critic to you even more so than being a performer or being, you oh, know what yes. I mean? Yes. And also, I suppose, um, you, could, you could analyze the behavior but it didn't stop it happening again, right? So, you know, we did an episode in which we talked about the, the, the nature of texting. You know, and if you date enough, that, that dance is, is, is much the same each time, right? You know, and the kind of the asking for the number and the, and the, what, how, what, and the composing of the text and, right. and the trying to seem kind of casual, right? And the, not texting and back not right texting away. Not texting back straight away because <laughs> you need to seem like you're very busy. And sure. All this, these games which are objectionable on both sides, right? You know, like, what, what is it? Why can't we just be honest? Why can't we just go, really enjoyed talking to you, love to take you for a drink. And instead, it's got to be like, hey, just found your number. Just thought I'd check in, you know, it's like this, this, this nonsense, this illusion. At least it seems to me with the dating apps, not that I've used them because I've been in relationships since they came along, but, you know, you, you, the dating app, it seems like, boom, you want to meet? Boom, yeah, yep, fairly boom. straightforward. It's like, a, like you've taken out all the, the, yeah. the dance of it, you know. Um, and so we would laugh at this, but it didn't mean that the next time we were in a dating scenario, we didn't have to go through it again, right? Because it's just because you're mocking it and discussing it in the writing room doesn't stop it being how real life is lived. Um, much the same as I remember we used to talk about with The Office. We, we, would, we would flag up all of these human shortcomings and failings that these characters had. We would put, shine a light on them and nothing changed. There are people in offices are still behaving exactly the same way. The Michael Scotts, the David Brents of the world are still acting that way, still getting it wrong, still embarrassing themselves. They're, they're their, their uh, employees are still s- laughing at them behind their back. Mission they have, failed. Mission completely failed. 
<laughs> well, did you? Uh, I was really sad that it only went one season, and mm. I feel like HBO made a mistake. But did you take that personally, or did it feel like less of a success because you d you didn't get to do a second season? Well, we did a sort of final movie. You did a movie, which, right? Which, which, which but was I, I thought Stewart had more to do. I agree, and I and I think um, I actually had realized early on, just before the show premiered, I thought, I actually remember calling HBO and saying, I think I'd love to go back in and just soften my character a little in the pilot, because I think maybe I made him a little too uh, mean-spirited or something. Right. And I think probably that may have been true, and that sort of people, you know, you say that you found him empathetic, but I think it probably, perhaps it took a few episodes for people it to did. get that. It did, yes. And I think perhaps, so I perhaps um, I would have changed that. But aside from that, I, I'm just really pleased with the series, and I just... I just think there's some really great stuff in it, and I and I think I did a good job, and and the die-hard fans of it, and you know, and I'll, you know, every so often I'll run into someone who's just, you know, someone that I really respect who loved the show. So that's fine. all I could do was it's like I used to say, you know, like I said about the office, you know, that I just I just wanted the people that were fans to really be fans. Right. The economics of whether it works and whether there's a big enough audience to keep it on the air, and da da da. I mean, that's. And I did the show I wanted to do, and I was very pleased with it. And I thought, and I think there's a load of funny stuff, and so I'm very proud of it. And so, um, you know, it would have been—I think I would have been upset if I had tried to compromise and pander, and I had failed. Because then I, you know, and if I didn't, if I was kind of embarrassed of the show because I was just trying to have a hit show. Yeah. But the fact I did the show I wanted to do, and and. Um, it's there, and, and the people that find it like it, it's fine. I'm fine with that. Well, that's the lesson right there. I think that is sort of, at least it's my version of what a successful artist is. It's somebody who, like Ricky Gervais, can get up out of the chair, not as a power move, but just like, well, there's no reason to do it if, right. if it can't be the thing that I picture, because why would I want to do that? And I think it's not just being obstinate and kind of, I'm gonna, my way or the highway. I think it's just that when you try and when you try and kind of not, if you try and make something that you don't find funny, but that you think people will find funny, or if you try and second guess the audience, you're, that's even harder than just trying to do something you think you'd like to see. Right. And I read a quote years ago, it's attributed to all kinds of people, but I think actually it was a, it was a journalist from the early 20th century, although I, I don't, don't know the name. But the quote is a version of, I can't tell you the secret of success, but I can tell you the secret of failure, and that's to try and please everyone. And I just think that's really wise, is that you just, you can please everyone sometimes by luck, by just good luck, but to try and please everyone all the time, it's just really, maybe you get it right, you know, and there are certainly people that get it right more often than they don't, like Steven Spielberg or someone, but that's, there's not many of them. Weirdly, in making Fighting With My Family, this is about this family from Norwich, England, they speak in a very specific way. They look a very specific way. They come from a very specific time and place in the UK. And there's a danger of, there was part of me that was like, well, should I just shave off the sharper edges? Should I try and homogenize them a bit more to make them more palatable to a broader audience? But actually, my experience has been that when you do that, it, they mean nothing to anyone. And that weirdly, the more specific you are, the, the middle American in, in in Ohio, whatever, is more likely to respond because even though they don't, they know they, they just they recognize 
the parallels with themselves, even if they have never been to Norwich and have never met a family of wrestlers. They can ju- there's, some, there's something that feels authentic and true that you as a viewer respond to, right? And even with the British version of The Office, it couldn't be more British and more of that moment in time and more specific. And yet suddenly we found out that Samuel L. Jackson was watching it on his DVD player and it was on constant loop. You know, it's sort of, what? Right. There's this movie star and he's in this Hollywood mansion. He's watching this weird show about paper factory and slough. But clearly there was enough in there that was sort of identifiable because 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 it was specific, because it was accurate. And I'm not Mr. kind of left field. I'm trying to, I, I... I want people to enjoy it. I assume they will. You know, in a way, because The Office was successful right off the bat, I think I thought I was more in tune with what the common man wanted than I was. You know what I mean? I just think there was a weird crossover there where that show hit. But actually, as, as my subsequent career has uh, unearthed, is that actually half the time I'm not in tune with the audience in the same way or not with that vast audience, that I don't have the common touch because I think everyone has painful dating experiences and people some people say no what are, you, what are you talking about it's fine you ask someone out they come out you have a drink that's that it's like so this stuff which I thought was universal maybe it's not <laughs> maybe there's just a subset of us that feel that way you know and I think increasingly I'm realizing that well I, you know I think that you would define success now differently than probably right. after you received your BAFTA on The Office. And, right. And I am curious, like now where you are in your career and you've made this film, um, how you define success for you? Well, success for me is do they let me do it again next time? Because I love making the jigsaw puzzle. I love making the car model. I love trying to get to the summit of the mountain. And so I just don't want to screw it up so bad that they that they take it away. You know, they say you've got to go back and do one of those jobs that your school counselor said you should have done. You know, you've got to go back and, and work in the bank. Nothing wrong with working in a bank, but you know what I mean? That wasn't my dream. Um, right. So that's the fear, right? Is that they, they go, they close the door and go, nope, party's over. So as long as they keep letting me do that, uh, then I'm happy, then, 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 that, then I'm successful. I, I'm not judging success on awards and money and, and, and cultural significance and all the rest of it. Does that fear ever entirely go away? Of course not. No. It doesn't. No, because you because if you're lucky enough, incredibly privileged as I am to do a job that would have been my hobby if it weren't my career, that's not many people that can say that. And 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 so the idea that you would take that away and they would say, no, you've got to go and do a proper job of work now. It's would terrifying. Just, would just be terrifying. <laughs> My dad said something to me when I was very young. He came in once, he was a plumber in a building, like I say, and he came in and he, he sat there and he just sort of sat at the kitchen table and he just went, son, never do a job you fucking hate. And it was like a gun going off. Like, oh, jeez. <laughs> There's this whole part of my dad's life that he can't bear, wow. you know? And I, luckily, through all the tough times I've had in this career, just in terms of the sheer man hours and the hard work and the, and the, and the you know, all those frustrations that you have, I've never felt that. I've never felt that I wanted to be doing anything else. Well, I, I think your career is fascinating, and and I really admire people who do not try to own a, you know, marketable, repeatable piece of culture, but instead keep trying different things. Right. And from Hal Ashby to, you know, uh, Bob Dylan to whoever. Every time you thought you could pin them down, they right. went somewhere else. And, and like you said, as long as someone keeps letting you do it. Yeah, you've got the life, and I think it's you know in, in all those artists you just mentioned, you know you you, 
I came to those guys when they already had this very diverse body of work, right? So you're looking back at this 20 or 30 years of work, and then if you study it, you realize that that was a hit and that was a failure, and they were written off there, and then they came back with this, and you realize that they went through a really emotional journey. Yeah. And so I felt a little bit like that, that, you know, it's sort of, I'd like the I'd like the version of me when I'm in my 70s to kind of stumble across my work and go, oh wow, this is oh that's different and this is oh and I didn't kind of wasn't really into that one, but this one I liked and yeah. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you. Likewise, thank, thank you. you for doing this. You're very welcome. Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. I've been a fan of Stephen Merchant ever since I saw the British version of The Office, and I was lucky enough to be able to work with him on his HBO series, Hello Ladies. And I highly recommend checking that out if you haven't yet. Just go to HBO Go and watch that series because it's really funny and really awkward, and you're going to feel like I did, which is that show should have gone more than one season. Also, make sure to check out his newest film, Fighting With My Family, And of course, you can always dive into old episodes of The Office and see the exact time and place when his brilliance began. And if you want to see where our brilliance began, you can go to the Off Camera website at offcamera.com and you can go through our entire archive of shows dating all the way back 178 episodes ago to late 2013 when we started this thing. It's a great way to take a deep dive into what we're doing on this show. Now, obviously, if you have DirecTV, you can see our episodes every week. But if you don't, you can also see every show we've ever made on any device you like as many times as you want by getting our off-camera subscription. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive, and it's a pretty great deal, and it's a great way to catch up on shows you missed. So check that out. Also, if you're loving this podcast and you have not yet subscribed, take a minute, go to Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to the show so you won't ever miss a week. It'll just show up automatically in your phone and you can listen to us. And while you're there, give us a rating and a review. That helps more people discover us each time you do that. So tell your friends and let the rest of the world in on this show. Great way to do that, of course, is social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you have any questions about the show, you want to get into a conversation, you want some advice, you want to suggest a guest, Social media is a great place to do that. So reach out to me or to the show and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me directly via email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. So connect with the show and hopefully we'll keep connecting with you for a long, long time. I want to thank everybody that works hard on this show each week. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. We have a great team they work really hard putting this show out. So when you see these people on the street, just give them five bucks or buy them lunch or, you know, give them a kiss, something. They deserve it. And most importantly, please tune in next time when I sit down with actor Daniel Radcliffe. We arrived in Japan when I was 12 for a Japanese press tour and the media reported that there were 5,000 people waiting in arrivals for us. We got a message before we landed where they were like, there's 100 security guards on staff for your landing. And we're like, 
that seems a bit much. That's crazy. And then we landed and it was like, oh no, this is not enough. There were highly trained security guards being pushed around by like six-year-old girls to eight-year-old women. It's just like we got through that like melee and my mum's button got like stuck on the toggle of a one of the women in the crowd's coats and they like had to like wrestle for a second and sort of run off and we all ran and we jumped into the car my mum and dad just like started laughing like how ridiculous was that? Dan grew up before our eyes as everyone's favorite wizard in the global phenomenon that was the Harry Potter series. Dan talks to me about the social and psychological challenges of living in the spotlight, how his love of acting drives him to make less obvious career choices, and why he's finally making the transition to American television in the new series Miracle Workers, opposite Steve Buscemi. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you all tune in. See you next time, off camera.